CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ricky, the head of the editorial team here at the II. And my name's Darcy, and I'm also on the editorial team here at the II. Today we've got for you the new renaissance, featuring theoretical physicist John Ellis, philosopher Sophie Scott-Brown, and journalist David Aronovich. This took place in 2022 at the How the Light Gets In Festival in London, the philosophy and music festival produced by the team here at the II. So, Darcy, tell us a little bit about this debate. So, this debate is primarily exploring kind of the role of hyper-specialised knowledge creation and what this kind of does to our ability to have a kind of more totalising worldview. Yeah, I I'm, I personally miss the days, not that I was around, when people could kind of write books defining their whole worldview, uh, like Schopenhauer's The World as well. You really idea, got to think of Schopenhauer, don't I you? Do I like every single podcast episode you bring up Schopenhauer. <laughs> Schopenhauer's a great philosopher, one of the best. Yeah. But that, that book is just his whole worldview in a single book. We yeah. rarely get that from people. Anymore. I think this idea more generally is captured in a really great essay by Max Weber called Science. Uh, I think it's Science as a Vocation, where he basically explores the nature of specialised knowledge and kind of its influence on people. And their ability to like take a more, I think he calls it a Weltschung, which is the German world, mm. German word for like a wide, wide ranging view. Mm. I think it's really important because also there's not that much impetus to kind of take a more broad outlook and also interdisciplinary kind of knowledge exploration. So if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe to your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now let's hand over to our host of this debate, Eliane Glazer. Hello, everyone. So in the first half of the 20th century, radical thinkers from Einstein to Schrodinger, Russell to Wittgenstein, Wolf to de Beauvoir, were transforming ideas. But many wonder where the equivalents are today and point to a deep-seated flaw. Universities and research labs have become increasingly specialized and focus on small piecemeal advances, leaving little room for originality and big thinking. Studies confirm a bias against publishing novel research, and 90% of papers remain unsighted, possibly unread by anyone. Is the academy and our culture as a whole in need of newer, bigger ideas? Should we encourage a less specialized and broader approach to create the breakthroughs and radical ideas of the future? Do we need to change the way university appointments are made and articles reviewed in order to escape conventional set thinking? Or have the big theories largely been found already and have we now only to fill in the gaps? So on to our speakers. John Ellis is a Maxwell Prize winning theoretical physicist who since 1978 has held an indefinite contract at CERN. Sophie Scott-Brown is a lecturer in philosophy working on intellectual history, social movements, democracy, and anarchism. 
David Aronovich is an award-winning journalist, broadcaster, and has a regular column for The Times. So we're going to start off with each speaker making their pitch, three minutes to um, set out their stall. And the question for the pitch is, are, is the academy, academia in other words, and our culture as a whole in desperate need of newer, bigger ideas? John. OK, well, uh, thanks very much. So I think the first thing I'm going to say is that I'm in somewhat of a disagreement with the uh, introduction to this uh, debate. <laughs> So, so I, I think actually there is a lot of originality and there is a lot of big thinking going on. Maybe the communication to the general public is not what it should be. I think it's a theme we're going to come back to uh, later on. Uh, but there's some other points in the introduction which I would also uh, take issue with. So it says here 90% of papers remain uncited. Well, I did a little survey in my own you know, limited field of particle physics and cosmology, and I found that only about 15% were not cited. 85% are, are cited. So I, I, I said that I think you know, there are new big ideas out there. And uh, you know, since I work part of the time in cosmology, I mean, there's nothing bigger than cosmology, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, we've established in, in the last 50 years or so that uh, the universe is 10 to the 28 centimeters across. It, its expansion is accelerating. Uh, it's full of stuff called dark matter that we have no idea what it is. Uh, beyond that, there's dark energy. We have even less idea what, what, what that is. So you know, there's certainly plenty of big ideas about what the universe is and what it contains. And I, I think that you know, we've got lots of ideas also how we can subject, uh, how we can develop theories about these things and subject them to experimental test. So I, I think, though, that one of the things that we, we need to do when we're doing this is to uh, use the widest possible uh, range, uh, range of tools. And uh, I would say that uh, the internet, the World Wide Web, which parenthetically was invented in the particle physics laboratory, now has revolutionized you know, all our lives. And in particular, it's made it possible for, for scientists across the world to collaborate basically instantaneously, read each other's literature. And in fact, all of the, the current scientific literature is basically available to you all for free. I, I'm not guaranteeing you're going to be able to understand it, but at least you can, at least you can access it and, and, and read it. Anyway, maybe I shut up at that point. I've probably been going on too long. Thank you, John. Sophie. Thank you. I'm not going to disagree with the terms of the question, but I think I would slightly reframe them. I think what would be most important, more most, what is going to be most interesting to think about now, is asking ourselves, well, um, who do we recognize and what do we recognize as sort of, or who do we recognize as intellectuals? And what sort of things do we intellect, recognize as intellectual work? And how many different forms of expression do we recognize as valuable intellectual expression? And um, I sort of personally feel that it's time for a general rethinking of what it means to have a vibrant, meaningful, democratic intellectual culture. I'd also like to say that possibly I wonder if we're not over-relying on the academy too much. Um, and I say that because historically, the and by the academy, I suppose I'm referring to the sort of enlarged university system, which encompasses teaching, which encompasses research, which involves a lot of sort of private-public partnerships. Uh, the modern university is doing many things. It is a lot of things to many, many different people. So I shall use the academy to cover all of that um, assortment of activity. 
And I wonder if we're overlying on it in the sense that traditionally universities as an institution have not really been necessarily specifically intended to be sites of innovation. I think that's a sort of maybe more con contemporary idea that comes alongside the development of the research university, which comes from a sort of Germanic tradition originally. Putting aside the elaborate histories of um, universities for one moment, um, often the greatest innovation has come from elsewhere. It's either come from the margins or pockets within and around the academy, or it's come from independent um, sort of public intele intellectual cultures. And that's what I'm really interested in. And I'm wondering what's happening to those, because it strikes me that um, from both sides of the sort of, or both sides of the sort of social spectrum or scale, the, these are disappearing places. So on the one hand, you used to have literary salons, people clustered around literary journals. Um, on the other hand, you used to have a very lively, thriving, very important in this country tradition of working class education, which was another tremendous source of um, innovative social thinking. Um, because of various factors, which maybe we could come back to or think about in more detail later, but I think that a lot of people have sort of retreated to the academy almost like it's the last sort of safe space where you could possibly do any sort of independent thinking. But of course, that comes at a price because, what I said earlier, universities traditionally have not been that site. Thank you, Sophie. David. Um, I discovered that the last time that I'd said anything on this subject, um, which probably wasn't worth hearing at the time, um, was uh, in 2004. I'd written a column for The Observer about a book produced by a Kent uh, um, a professor called Frank Ferrady. Uh, and essentially, it was one of a series of kinds of books that people like him were writing about how terrible everything was. Um, and so it fitted into, if you like, to a kind of particular, um, what I call a kind of declinist um, narrative, which was, isn't it dreadful how things have got, how public discussion has become, how debate has become, how, and, and, and that can quite easily feed into discussions about the impacts about things of things like social media, or if you just listen, just talking now in the tent, maybe, is, has Zoom been a help or a hindrance to uh, public, to engagement with each other and so on. Um, and so one of the problems somebody like me dealing with is, is that this is absolutely a constantly present narrative. Things in this field have got worse, we just have. Um, and then the second thing I noticed about this, thinking about some of the things that, uh, that John has just talked about, uh, particularly the, um, what's been happening in the sciences, I think it would be difficult to argue that we aren't actually more scientifically literate and more literate about big questions in science than we probably were 50 years ago, uh, when actually the space race probably dominated people's notion of what science was. And I don't just mean because of COVID, but I also mean because of the incredible advances in the understanding of physics. I don't imagine that kids at school are taught physics the way I was taught physics at school uh, at the beginning. I imagine that they're taught in a much wider sense with the big, some of the ideas beginning first and only then beginning to come down to the, if you like, the more kind of particular methods. Um, uh, so the other thing I kind of feel about talking about the academy and universities is there have been two 
enormous changes in Britain and in other countries to the academy. And they are really very simple. Firstly, when I went to university a very long time ago, 8% of, of British people went into higher education. Now the figure trends towards the high 40s. Uh, and the other thing is, the university I first went to, when I first went to it, was 11 males to every one woman. Um, now, uh, 60 up to 60% of undergraduates are female. So the other thing that you're worried about is whenever you kind of talk about a declining element in the university, what you really can easily be talking about is whether A, there aren't too many oiks getting in, and B, isn't it a shame that the blokes don't have their place in the sun anymore? So you just have to be kind of careful. That doesn't invalidate the things that are being said here. And then the other thing that has to be said is this is a philosophy festival, and philosophers are always worried that no one's listening to them. Um, always, always, always. I don't think there's any time when they're not. Ever since Schopenhauer used to give give his lectures at the same time as Hegel, deliberately so that no students would come, so that, <laughs> because that would be a kind of test of how society was declining uh, at the time and, and so on. Um, the final thing I just want to say, so this is before kind of coming away from those two, um, uh, uh, you know, not kind of hugely deep observations, is that we need also to take this outside of the academy. Because if we're talking about where public intellectuals, what a public intellectual is, and where public in intellectuals are to be heard, they're called public intellectuals because they talk to the public. Um, not just because they are public, everybody's public in some sense, but because the public in some sense, i.e. the greater demos, uh, in, uh, engages with them and will decide whether or not we think there's been a decline. But one of the things you do notice over time is that, for example, to take a program on radio like Any Questions, 50 years ago, Any Questions was very likely to have a public intellectual, i.e. a philosopher, maybe a bishop with a sort of, you know, significant grasp of how theology interacted with philosophy on it. Nowadays, Tory, Labour, Lib Dem, and some uh, hopeless columnist who's 25, but has endorsed either Jeremy Corbyn or Brexit, and therefore deserves their position as kind of balancing off whoever the other side is. So let's also talk about public intellectuals in the context of outside the academy. Thank you, David. So, um, now we've heard the three pictures, let's turn to the debate. And um, our first theme is whether true originality in any discipline is harder to achieve now than ever before. So, John, I'm going to ask you to, to respond in a moment to what David said about public engagement and public um, dissemination of science. But in terms of your discipline, do you think that it's harder to be original and to have original discoveries in your subject than now than it, than it was in a previous era? So I think there's some pluses and there's some minuses. So uh, let me start off with a, with a minus, which is uh, the sort of microphysics that I, I sort of grew up with, which that's my sort of core business, so to speak, I think is increasingly uh, suffering from an issue that we need facilities which are more and more expensive. And you know, for how long will society continue to support the construction of such facilities? Or, or indeed, now in the days of mounting electricity prices, actually run these facilities once they've been built. So, so I think that that's one aspect which is making progress in, uh, for example, particle physics uh, increasingly uh, sticky. Uh, on the other hand, I think you know, some big opportunities have opened up, like the connection between the science of the very, very small and the science of the very, very big. This is an opportunity that's uh, come to life uh, you know, during my scientific lifetime, and it's ever, uh, ever increasing. And you know, there's lots more 
potential opportunities coming along, which are now within our grasp. Like, uh, for example, I know studies of exoplanets, uh, the search for extraterrestrial life, and, uh, and I could go on. And I also think that there's a demographic plus. So, uh, David, you already mentioned that you know, there are now many more female students than there were also when I was uh, you know, an undergraduate. And I think that's gradually becoming true also in the research community. So uh, more females, uh, more people of color, I hope, are also now participating. And I mentioned the fact that you know, with the internet, with the World Wide Web, with Zoom, you know, there's a much more level playing field in terms of uh, who can participate in the scientific debate. You, know, you can be in Bangladesh, you can be in Japan, you can be in Colombia, uh, you can be in the UK, and you can participate in an essentially uh, uh, level playing field. So I think that's also a plus and a, so advantageous for the uh, development and dissemination of new ideas. Thank you. And Sophie, I mean, philosophy, you know, it's the subject with the biggest ideas, but have you noticed a, a narrowing in your discipline in recent years or decades? Well, I think obviously there has been a notable um, trend to specialisation. You can't really um, extract that from the sort of wider situation universities uh, find themselves in. I sort of would prefer not to take this, this talk down the kind of um, grumbling line of the neoliberal university, but obviously I think it would be remiss not to mention the fact that certain funding criteria or simply the kind of administrative or the bureaucratic structures of universities now are encouraging specialization, encouraging a certain degree of conservatism. Most of my colleagues quite openly say that they have to be almost, you know, 90% certain of what they're going to find or going to write before they can confidently put together this grant application which is promising to solve the, all the problems of the, of the world. So yes, there is that factor. But I think something that really interests me more, coming back to this idea of um, big ideas or new ideas, and again, I, I agree with, my, um, with John and with, with David that I think there are ideas out there, and I think there are lots, and I'm, I, I sort of really welcome the increasing diversification, the increasing participation in university culture, but also in intellectual culture generally. I suppose what interests me are the ways where, and this is, I think, w the, the big issue for me, why we feel there's a dearth when in fact we're saying there's a surplus is because we're not quite finding those spaces or those fora to come together. So something like this, actually, I'm, I'm actually quite conscious that I'm saying we're not finding them. And yes, we've actually found <laughs> one. Here we are. Um, yes. <laughs> so this is, this is great. This is us, you know, forming the new society. Excellent. Well done, everyone. Um, so, but there, that, that's a sort of serious point. And, and not just in the kind of physical space way, although I think that is really important. I'm not an anti-Zoom person but I do think sometimes conversations can be that much easier when I, I certainly find it easier to read a face than a, than a screen. Um, but also in the sense of the disciplines. How do we get those disciplines to speak to each other? Well, not just speak to each other, but melt down some of their, their barriers. I mean, disciplines in some ways, kind of by the very nature, foreclose a degree of originality because they frame what can be said and how it can be said. Um, that can be very useful in some areas, but I don't think we give enough attention to what we mean by interdisciplinary. Interdisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity is the big buzzword. If you tell you know, people in the university, this is going to be interdisciplinary, wonderful, great, hooray. But then nobody actually 
really cares what that means. And I'm interested in that. If we were really serious about interdisciplinarity, we would be changing our entire pedagogical culture at university. We'd be coming away from the sort of very knowledge-heavy, content-heavy models, and we'd be switching to more learning-led, uh, learning uh, process-focused um, styles of learning, problem-based learning, inquiry-driven learning, that sort of thing. We know all these ideas. We also know that they work, but there is no impetus to do them. And that has to bring you back again, full circle, to this politics of the university. Thank you, Sophie. And David, I mean, just in terms of how we got here, um, I suppose two questions I've got for you. One is you know, to account for you know, perhaps a lack of big ideas in the, in the culture outside the academy. I was thinking, you know, there's a decline of the sort of grand narratives, the isms um, that we saw earlier in the 20th century. Um, and um, so perhaps that's one shift away from ideology and big ideas in, in the sort of political um, realm. But also we see a lot of anti-intellectualism um, in recent years, the kind of um, populism and I suppose a, a distrust of experts and intellectuals. So what do you think is, accounts for the perhaps um, a decline in big ideas in the, in the public conversation? Um, the first thing I say is that actually it is precisely the experts who are often at odds with the big ideas. Now, I think we should be quite clear about this. Populists often have very big ideas. And one of the big contingent isms which still is around with a vengeance is nationalism. Um, uh, and nationalism makes short order of experts who say the wrong things or whose expertise leads them into, into the wrong direction. So the, uh, if, if, if the question essentially is, where's the next Karl Marx coming from, uh, and so on, why isn't there this, these sets of people who can go off and have enormous thoughts um, and spend their whole lives concocting these enormous thoughts and writing these books without the need ever really to do anything else other than write occasionally bits of journalism for the Times, as Karl Marx did, and so on. Um, uh, I, that is a difficult question to answer. It, it feels in some ways as if we have exhausted the various kind of propositions about the, um, uh, 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 the transcendent propositions about the bigger society, and we now distrust them significantly because we want to see whether or not they work. And it may be that this is actually a legacy of the failure of two huge isms during the course of the 20th century, and therefore people in a sense, I mean, but after all, we've seen a failure of a minor ism just within the last week since the mini-budget. There's a mini-budget which is significantly ideological. Um, because it doesn't relate to the practical world, it falls apart within five days. And all of a sudden, you've got a governing party that goes from being in the kind of high 30% to being in the high to mid-20s, and so on. So uh, the first thing is to say is that there is a suspicion of big ideas. And for my money, I'm not terribly worried about that. I am. I'm happy for us to be more pragmatic. If questions that we are being pragmatic about are, for example, how do we get to net zero? That is a huge pragmatic question. That's not an ideological question, for heaven's sake, unless, unless, you, unless there's a kind of gang of people who think it's good for the planet to die, and a gang of people who think it's bad for the planet to die, and they're in sort of in some kind of contest. Um, so that's one of the, I th actually, I think that will do for the time being, otherwise I'm gonna take up too much time. Okay. But. Thank you. 
So we'll, we're going to move on now to, to look at the nitty-gritty of how institutions like universities function and their relationship with the outside world. So John, I mean, David was fairly sanguine about um, public dissemination of science um, and touched on um, trust and experts and so on. So how, do, how well do you think universities and scientists in particular are communicating scientific ideas to, to the outside world? Uh, well, I know you should probably ask the audience that question. <laughs> I mean, I, th I think that uh, many of us you know, put the best efforts that we can in, in, into that. I, I'd like to come back to a, a couple of other things that were said uh, earlier on. So, David, you were just talking about money and ideas being in opposition. I think this is a, this is a big problem in our contemporary society. We were talking, well, it was mentioned earlier on about uh, interdisciplinarity, and this, I think, is certainly a key thing for innovation within the university. And I, I actually agree that there is a problem. Uh, and again, I think it has, comes back to something that Sophie mentioned, the question of how do you write a grant application which is interdisciplinary and actually hope to get some money? Uh, I think the answer often is that you, you write the first grant application and you do get some money for a startup. But, but you don't get the resources for a continuing program. Can I just ask a question? Because I am not familiar with what you're talking mean when you talk about interdisciplinarity. And I wonder whether there might, I mean, it might be that the audience is more familiar than I am, but obviously it's become to be quite important. What, what are we talking about here? A working definition, either of you? Well, I mean, it, this is partly the problem. I mean, because people, it can be sometimes the sum of all parts. So you basically line up all your colleagues in different disciplines and say, you know, sort of, look, we all sat around the same table. Um, uh, or the version I, I would like to pursue, which is a bit more meaningful, is when those disciplines start to interpenetrate one another and actually have sort of genuine conversations. And then you are in quite a creative um, space. But possibly that might function differently in the sciences. Uh, well, I, I think it's very similar to what you just said. I mean, ju just to give you an example, uh, I realize that some of the uh, experimental techniques which are useful for testing my theoretical ideas could also have uh, applications to uh, climate monitoring and uh, climate change uh, studies. Right. So. Uh, we proposed uh, a little workshop to discuss you know, how one could work together towards a common objective you know, using these techniques, both for fundamental physics and for uh, climate monitoring. And so we got a little you know, pot of money just to encourage us. But, but then to go to the next step, to, to actually uh, inaugurate a research program or to, to bring together two different departments of the university to, to work together on this, this seems to be much more difficult. So, that, that's an example of the sort of interdisciplinarity that I'm talking about, and also an example of the sort of difficulty that I'm talking nice. to. So I don't know whether that, Sophie, is what, the sort of thing you had in mind. Um, to a degree, I mean, I would, I, I would like to see it taken, taken further. And you know, sort of, we've been talking about what the university currently is, and this is actually a really good time for universities to be asking themselves, what are we? Because they have become suddenly all singing, all dancing spaces. They have absorbed a lot of this public intellectual culture, and they're not going to give it back. So we can't sort of look forward to the day when all that's restored. They have absorbed a lot of the working class education um, culture, and same thing. That's not, that's not sort of coming back again. So 
but we are facing serious problems. So if we're going to say that the university is performing some important role and that whether or not it should have or could have or might have done differently, this is what it is. We need to be thinking very hard about what that space is doing and can do and could look like in the future. And interdisciplinarity is one sort of serious area that, you know, that could implica um, have implications across both teaching and in research that we could really make some differences. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking about CP Snow and the, and the two cultures, and I suppose um, you know, there's practical um, benefits to um, interdisciplinarity um, in terms of solving the world's big problems, but also, I guess, in terms of big ideas. Um, I, I was interested, John, how, I mean, there's lots of talk of, of those sort of exchange of ideas, but in practice, within the scientific community, is there a genuine openness, do you think, to talking to other disciplines like the humanities or people outside science? Or is there a certain impatience that actually you do something that's very technical and specialised, and that actually it's actually quite difficult to have meaningful exchanges? So I, I must confess that I don't spend a lot of time discussing with uh, academics and the humanities. I, I apologize <laughs> uh, for that. I, I try to engage as much as I can with, with the general public. I, I try to engage as much as I can with uh, scientists in disciplines where I see some sort of uh, possible uh, connection. I'm here trying to engage somewhat with the philosophical community. Uh, actually, it's kind of ironic that here I am in the philosophy debate and the science that I do is actually being discussed in two parallel events at exactly the same time. <laughs> Spooky physics. <laughs> but sadly, even though you're um, quantum physicist, you can't be in two places at once. <laughs> <laughs> Sophie, I was, I was thinking, of, I mean, you might have a response to that question. And in addition, I was thinking about, you know, there's a lot of pressure on academics to demonstrate value for money. Is there perhaps a difficulty with just sort of staring out the window and having big thoughts and open-ended um, thoughts without sort of having to demonstrate outputs? Well, again, I mean, I sort of, so I'm in the interesting position where I find myself sort of quite against the kind of output end product culture. But ironically, because I am open, more receptive or more interested in the process and the learners and the learner driven pedagogies and things like that, um, I'm actually having possibly get, uh, find myself having greater effect um, in terms of what what I get out of the situation. So, for example, um, I mentioned problem based learning and we've actually we've sort of discussed this. So if you take something like climate change, right, there's your there's your problem. You can bring a lot of different people into a room and actually like I said, I say, I think, you know, when we're talking about, oh, let's produce big ideas, like always there's that notion, there's the end product. Let's have an idea. We're going to, you know, do a pro, do, do some sort of procedures, techniques, not the end, boom, we've, we've gonna, we're going to build ourselves a nice idea and that's our product and that's what's going out to market because let's not make bones about this. This is what it is. It's something to sell. But actually for me, I do find that if we're talking about, are we talking about just pumping out more ideas as products? Are we talking about a general increase in creativity, not just um, among sort of, not just concentrated among academics or people working within universities, because obviously our students, they're in an interesting situa situation. They're part of the university, but they're also, you know, they, they are still sort of part of that wider public too. And, you know, so it's this idea of how do we produce a generally more creative culture? And we do that by starting to maybe um, loosen a bit some of our ideas about what is acceptable forms of language to speak in or what are acceptable ways or forms of communication to have in or what are acceptable spaces. That, and we don't always have to worry about what comes out at the end. Actually, it's enough that we exchange some ideas. We don't necessarily have to 
worry that we've resolved anything by the end of it. I mean, from a philosophical point of view, that is actually philosophy in action. So that's actually me having done my job. It might be a bit trickier from a sort of scientific... Well, we had a lovely talk. Um, that might be a bit trickier to reconcile with your, with your line manager. <laughs> no, but I I'd just like to bring out a, what seems to me an important aspect of what you're saying. It's the vast majority of the students who pass through universities, of course, don't stay in universities. That They go out into the wider society. And I think, David, you made uh, earlier on the point that probably the, the general level of scientific literacy is way higher than it was 50 years ago. And, and I would hope that the academy could help all these additional students who are going out into society to be more creative and, and, and innovative and also have a sort of deeper understanding of what knowledge is and how one generates it and what it's useful for. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that, I, that really informed uh, my, my thinking in the last 20 years was the disaster that happened over the opposition to the MMR um, vaccination. So essentially, uh, a media that was absolutely unable to comprehend statistical arguments to do with uh, public health um, collided with a rogue scientist um, and a set of maxims about how you were to describe this, which also collided with a series of public prejudices and so on about it, and created, very nearly created a public health disaster. Spool on to COVID. Um, and immediately we begin to have, for better or for worse, I think for better, the chief scientific officer and the chief medical officer on daily display discussing epidemiology. People who couldn't even pronounce epidemiology became amateur epidemiologists within weeks and so on. Again, it has its negative sides, but it also has its positive sides. People began to learn quite a lot. A lot of people began to learn about the properties of vaccines, uh, how remarkable it was, talking about the sharing learning, how incredible it was that the DNA of a particular virus had been sent by Chinese scientists to scientists all over the world so that they could begin working on a vaccine and got us a vaccine in roughly, what, about a tenth of the time that any kind of previous vaccine had been worked up in. And large numbers of people out there, large numbers of us, broadly understood what was happening. Um, so that, to me, is an advance. Now, I don't know whether you call it an intellectual advance uh, and so on, but it seems to me an advance in public understanding, which is worthy of it being an intellectual advance. Now, this isn't always happening. We, we concentrate on the malign effects of certain bits of social media. We concentrate on the conspiracy theories. We concentrate, on, et cetera. But actually, if we t I, I think if we talk about the broad uh, impact of something like that, then people... I think people were informed. Yeah, but, but the irony is that that tremendous scientific success and that communication of the science that you're uh, talking about happened in parallel to massive misinformation on, on the social media. Uh, COVID denial, uh, people who were refusing to get vaccinated, people who were refusing to allow their kids to be vaccinated for something else, and so on. So, you know, th th this is a coin with two very different sides. Can I just interrupt? Inter uh, sorry. 
However, 95% of us or whatever did get vaccinated. And this is something actually where we have to be very careful about what is appearing on social media at, every, at any given time. It leads to a kind of malign concentration and so on. I mean, speaking of somebody who's a target sometimes of social media, I can tell you that the number of people who are involved, let's say, in what seems like an absolutely terrible Twitter pylon is to be numbered in the dozens. Mute them and block them, and they don't exist anymore. Um, and I imagine in villages where they used to have poison pen letters, it was sort of something similar. I know it's really hard to kind of get one's head around, but insofar as we're talking about the opposite now of the public intellectuals, which is whether or not society is dumbed down, I think my argument broadly would be that it actually isn't. Okay. Well, let's look to the future, both in terms of optimism and pessimism, and ask if we could see a return to a less specialised education system and indeed more interchange and exchange with the broader culture um, that, uh, and a culture that leaves room for, for big ideas. So, Sophie, in terms of what the academy can do, um, I mean, we've talked about uh, exchange between academics and better dissemination, room for thinking. What's your ideal um, you know, picture for the academy and its role in, in the world? Right, well... Big question, um, but... Yes, only got, interesting. Yeah, a few minutes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, so I think this issue is really... It's going to show us something very, very clearly. It's going to show us a clash between economic priorities and political priorities. Because at the end of the day, if the academy doesn't start thinking of itself more in terms of this ecosystem and trying to make that ecosystem of all its different parts, whether it's the relationship with private industry, which is a major and important factor and another way of sort of um, generating kind of uh, wider public intellectual culture. It's commitments towards education, towards widening participation, diversity, inclusivity, all that sort of thing. How does it do that without just creating a mass version of its existing system, which isn't going to do anybody any good? Um, how is it going to keep producing research, which is going to be quick enough and fit enough to keep up with the pace of dynamic problems? Climate change is not going to be nicely solved. It's going to keep on changing. We've got to be able to think like that. So in some ways, every single element of the world that we're looking at and facing at, and that's before I even get to sort of political security issues, demands that we're going to have to sort of let go of some of our um, sort of passions for nice boxes, compartmentalism, and we're going to have to learn how to do far more quick, creative thinking. We're going to have to maybe shift slightly more to those skills-driven sort of um, emphases in, in the work we do. But politically, obviously, you know, so what are we saying? That the, that the ingredients for creativity here are, you know, this sort of democratization within our culture, you know, within the university academy culture, and autonomy, some the space, the freedom, the, the resource to, to do this unen unencumbered. And that, of course, is going to bring us up against the political issue, which is obviously, is it in the power that, you know, the powers that be, is it in their interest to have a broadly speaking creative society, creative, independent, autonomous critical thinking society, all these good things that we say we want to educate people for, is it in anyone with power's interests to produce that? I'm not sure. So it would actually be one heck of a sort of uh, bloodless revolution if we pull it off. And John, your, <laughs> your prescriptions, I mean, Sophie's mentioned skills though, and there is a greater emphasis now on practical skills, but you're, you know, one might say on the more abstract 
um, end of the spectrum in science, do you think there's still a, a place for defending not non sort of you know easily applicable um, big thinking within science? And also, I wanted to ask you you know more generally about your prescriptions for academic science. Are there other things that we need to look at? For example, the peer review system. Uh, okay, well, there's a whole bunch of questions there. Let me start off with the peer review system. So, so I think the peer review system in my particular area has basically disappeared because everybody posts their uh, papers uh, onto a, a public access archive and everybody reads those uh, public versions before they're peer reviewed. And people often don't notice whether the papers eventually get published in some peer review journal or not. I think that you know, the community has enough sort of uh, common sense communally to decide what is a useful paper and what is uh, not a useful paper. Um, so that's uh, one aspect of what you are asking about. And then practicability versus um, yes. abstract thinking. Yes, yes. So I think that one thing that has developed a lot since you know, I was a student and now that I'm a professor is a, a lot more uh, sort of project-based uh, learning. So, for example, in the course where, uh, where I'm involved, in the last two years, there are projects. And I think this provides the students with uh, a whole bunch of not strictly academic skills, you know, you know, varying from uh, time management to uh, writing in English to uh, actually being creative. And I think this is you know, a tremendous improvement on uh, what there was before. So if I, if I think back to you know, when I was a student or, or when I was uh, at school, I, I think that the emphasis was much more on teaching existing knowledge, uh, whereas now I think there's much more emphasis on, on developing knowledge and understanding. But obviously, this is something that needs to be taken further, I would say, particularly in schools. And David, I mean, you may reflect on, on those comments, but also I wanted to ask you more generally, go back to Sophie's comments about the political culture and I suppose you, you're optimistic um, about um, social media earlier in terms of a sm small number of, of trolls and so on sort of polluting the discourse. But is there a risk that you know, with scrolling news, 24-hour news, that in a way it's hard to lift our heads up and think about the big issues and the big questions when we're following the sort of who said, he said, she said of, of the, um, that hour's... Uh, news. I think we should be clear that most, the vast majority of people don't scroll 24-hour news uh, and so on. I mean, these have relatively small audiences. You can kind of exaggerate. People tend to take their news from the main bulletins or from, uh, or from various other things. Not that I don't think your question is a good question. It's always a question about how long people's attention spans are. All I would say is there is a substantial pushback uh, in parts of the business. I mean, I should know because I present a program which is devoted on Radio 4, which is devoted to doing exactly that, which is how do you best understand a topic and devote some uh, uh, time to it. But coming back to your earlier question, I mean, I'm surprised no one's mentioned it. The first thing you want to do if you want to achieve this objective is abolish the A-level. What an absolutely preposterous exam it is. It enforces total specialisation on kids at the age of 16. You talked about C.P. Snow earlier. That's your decision. I remember 
And this going back even at the O-level days, you had to choose between whether you would do geography or biology and so on. Uh, th this would set you on the path to the three sciences which you would take. You would become a scientist, etc. If you didn't, you would become a humanitarian. Uh, we had some students in oil. I was talking to some students about, uh, about as part of the program here. Quite a few doing maths, quite a few doing English. Not a single one of them was doing a foreign language. Not one. Not a single... How can you possibly talk about uh, skills and interdisciplinarity, etc., when we are raising complete generations of people who cannot speak any language other than their own and don't even know how language is constructed, and so on. No one, they none of them do, etc. The GCSE uh, level is a joke in itself. Look at the things that we put kids through in order to get to that point so that they can then specialise into their three A-levels and never touch the other sides of, the, uh, of these things. Abolish them. Every single government that's done a commission on this question has had the report coming back to them, essentially should abolish A-level, so why don't they do it? I'm afraid to say it's not to do with how they don't value create the people at the top don't value creativity. It's because the academy itself, every time it happens, says, oh, no, we can't possibly do that. That specialism is the absolute lifeblood of what gives English education in particular, presumably Scottish as well, its particularity. Do that, and we'll be having four-year courses and we'll be doing like the Swiss do or the Germans do, et cetera. And incidentally, I wouldn't want to work in the German higher education system myself <laughs> uh, either, uh, as it happens. Uh, uh, but that's because of completely different reasons. So the first thing we would do is we would abolish the A-level and we would replace it with something like a five to six subject baccalaureate. The second thing we would do is we would go to the American system of having many more connected subject, degree level subjects uh, uh, in higher education. So you could do some physics and some philosophy, uh, and so on. I mean, why would you not? Why, why, why is that so impossible? So the answers lie, but usually it's the academy that pushes back at it. Uh, uh, actually, so. at King's, we do have a physics and philosophy course. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and we also have a physics and cosmology course as well. But I'm absolutely with you about the, the international baccalaureate. So my daughter was sitting in the front row. She can testify to it. She took the inter uh, International Baccalaureate, and I think it's just a, a way better uh, educational program than A-levels. She just grimaced, so I know which one she is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not so difficult to tell, is it? <laughs> right. Well, there we have to end it. Let's thank our speakers. to this week's episode of Philosophy Before Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.